day on the, on the Christian calendar. It's the day we fix our eyes on the crucifixion of Jesus. Something even strange about moments like what we just experienced. Our, our natural disposition is to move forward with the song and to sing about the triumphant resurrection of Jesus. Good Friday is an incredibly dark day in human history. In fact, there's, there's never been a darker day in human history. In Mark's gospel account, he, he gives us a visual depiction of the darkness of that day, the day that Jesus died. If you pick up the story in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, we're told, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. If you, if you study Mark's gospel account, it's a fascinating book of the Bible. No detail is, is meant um, to be unexplored. Uh, Mark uses the word immediately over and over again, kind of moving us from one event to the next. And that means that every little intricate detail that he gives us, he means to give us. A couple of key scenes that set the stage for the one that you encounter here in, in Mark chapter 15, going back to the, the very first chapter of the book of Mark, very famous scene at the baptism of Jesus. We're told that the heavens were torn open and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With, with you, I am well pleased. You have a very similar account in Mark chapter 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're told that a cloud overshadowed Peter, James, and John, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. On, on two separate occasions in Mark's gospel account, we're presented with this picture that's meant to draw our attention to the skies. And in both instances, God the Father declares Jesus Christ the Son to be his beloved but here in Mark chapter 15, our attention is, is once again drawn to the skies, but this time, two things are drastically different. Number one, rather than a cloud, it's darkness that descends upon the land. And secondly, rather than the Father's voice from heaven, it's the Son's voice crying out before he breathes his last breath. All four gospel writers go, go to incredibly great lengths to show us that the most significant events having to do with Jesus' death happened in the dark. Judas's betrayal of Jesus happened at night. Similarly, Jesus's trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, along with the scribes and the elders, it also happened at night. And here in Mark chapter 15, at the moment of Jesus's death, we're told that darkness descends upon the land. Right in the heat of the day, right between the sixth and the ninth hour, between noon and 3 p.m. our time, a blanket of darkness shutting out the noonday sun. Some uh, attempt to account for the darkness that you see here in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, through natural causes. And so some argue for an eclipse, failing to acknowledge that a solar eclipse only creates true darkness for a, a few very brief moments. Others argue for some sort of drought-inflicted sandstorm strong enough to create enough dust to actually blot out the sun, failing to account for the fact that Passover happens to take place during the wet season. Mark is unquestionably describing to us a supernatural darkness, a darkness that's meant to communicate something of significance to us. 
And we're not left guessing as to what that something of significance is. The Bible in other places makes clear that darkness in the midst of the noonday sun is a sign of God's judgment. The prophet Isaiah says it this way. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. The prophet Amos says it this way, and on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun at noon and darken the broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Probably the most familiar example of of darkness that we know of in the scriptures as a sign of God's judgment took place right before the very first Passover. The ninth of the 10 plagues to sweep over Egypt was the plague of darkness. We're told in, in Exodus chapter 10, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Similar to this, this room this very evening. So Moses, we're told, stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. That darkness in the Bible, in the midst of the noonday sun, is undeniably a sign of God's judgment. Coming back to Mark 15, Jesus Christ hung on a splintered Roman wooden cross, bearing the judgment of God under the darkened skies of Jerusalem. That's what you see here in this scene that Mark paints for us. The very one who, on two separate occasions, in Mark's very gospel account, had been declared to be the Father's beloved, now the Father's forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, as Tim Keller so eloquently puts it, had been involved in this eternal intra-Trinitarian dance with God the Father and God the Spirit, a dance that predates the foundations of the world. And for the first time since before time began, Jesus found himself separated from that dance. He, he didn't pose those words, why have you forsaken me? Because he didn't know the answer to the question. He knew that, that he, the sinless one, was bearing the judgment that should have fallen on you and me. That in the words of of one familiar song, in our place condemned he stood, sealing our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. That the darkness sweeping over Jerusalem that day was a sign of God's judgment falling upon Jesus in our place. We talk about it around here all the time, right? This is nothing novel that we talk about this evening. But there are, there are other aspects of darkness that I'm not sure that we take into account when we think of the events of Good Friday. It's not just the skies that are described as darkened in Scripture. It's you and me, which is why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, for at one time you were darkness. Those are hard words to swallow. Unable to see yourself, like a person trying to, to see the, their hand right in front of them in a darkened room, struggling, no sense of identity. And not only that, completely disoriented, disoriented by the darkness without, without any true sense of direction in life. Jesus says it plain as day in John chapter 12, verse 35, where he says, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. That's the world that Jesus entered into. 
The light entered into the darkness. There's a reason that Jesus was crucified. When he entered into human history, people began to see their evil thoughts, their evil affections, and their evil deeds exposed, and they didn't like it. And it wasn't just the the religious neatniks of Jesus' day. It was also the irreligious people. The irreligious didn't like coming face to face with the truth. They wanted to create their own ideas of truth, their own standards of good and evil. The religious wanted to believe that they could brighten up their own darkness through good works. And that actually did work as long as they compared themselves to all the sinful people around them. But when Jesus came along in all of his perfection, in all of his sinlessness, they hated him because he crushed their standard of goodness, revealing their inability to earn God's love. The light entered into the darkness, as John says in the first chapter of his gospel account, and the darkness crucified the light. And the reality is human beings have been and continue to be perfectly content walking in darkness on a path toward our own disintegration. The the beauty of Good Friday is not solely that Jesus bore our judgment, the judgment that should have fallen upon us for our sin. The the darkness that swept over Jerusalem, along with the the tearing of the curtain of the temple from top to bottom, as Mark describes it in this evening's passage, it's a declaration that Jesus bore our darkness and disintegration, providing us with access to the true source of light, identity, and direction, namely God himself. Coming back to Ephesians 5, the good news is it doesn't end with the words that we saw the first time it was up on the screen. Paul goes on to say, For at one time you were darkness, but now, Christian, you are light in the Lord. Good Friday. It's a weird thing to call this day, isn't it? Where's the sensibility in calling the darkest day in human history good? The answer is that when we fix our eyes on the crucified Jesus, which is what we're seeking to do this evening, we see the hope of salvation. The hope that's ours is taking our darkness upon himself, which is what the Samaritan saw. He's, he's perhaps my favorite character in this part of Mark's gospel account, the Roman centurion. It's pretty incredible. This is a man who had presided over so many executions that he had probably lost count by the time he got to Jesus. But there was something different about Jesus' death for this man. As darkness swept over the land, the centurion saw the beauty of Jesus piercing through his very own personal darkness with light. He knew that God demanded justice for his sin as evidenced by the darkened sky. But he also knew that mercy and grace were offered in the atoning work of the one whose blood spilled right in front of his very eyes. Can you imagine that? And here's the beauty. If you come in this evening and you question whether you're beyond the grace of God, if there's hope for the centurion, the the human being who presided over the darkest act in all of human history, then none of us in this room is beyond the reach of God's grace. Isn't that glorious? We live in a time in which it's incredibly difficult to slow down. I don't know if you figured that out yet. We, we live in a time in which the practice of contemplative worship is, is really difficult to embrace in a sea of electronic devices. And so here's what we're going to shoot for for the next few minutes. Um, over the course of, of the next few moments, we ask that you, you not partake of the Lord's Supper just yet. We'll get there momentarily. We ask that you, you not even sing. Over the course of the next few minutes invite you into a time of of contemplation and reflection. 
to, to simply stand at the foot of the cross alongside the centurion and behold the crucified Jesus, to see him dying the death that you deserve to die, to see him taking your darkness upon himself, the only darkness that could have destroyed you forever, to see the darkest moment in all of human history and in these moments to come to declare it good.